Sarma. Well, we're going to continue our study in um, the Confession of Faith and Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, and tonight we'll be looking at uh, paragraphs 3 through 5, and so uh, out of the 10, so we'll just, we're just going to, we're taking this chunk by chunk, God willing, next time we'll, we'll finish this article up, but I'd like to begin by turning to Colossians chapter 1. just reading this glorious statement on the supremacy of Christ over all things, really, over the physical creation, but then also uh, over um, redemptive creation that is giving us new hearts and the salvation that we have. So what I'd like to do is read verse, excuse me, 15 to 23, and um, maybe we'll split this up. Uh, Masi, you want to give it uh, 15 to 17? And Chris, can you get 18 to 23? Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold, to, hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, (coughs) not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can consider the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding from your word this evening. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be kindled with with a greater affection for Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And so, Lord, we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we've been talking about Um, A mediator is one who bridges the gap, right? One who intervenes between two parties. And Jesus Christ, we talked about his, uh, that he's fully God and fully human last time. Therefore, he's able to meet God's standards. And a mediator is not necessarily an office, it's a function. But there are offices that branch from that function. Do you remember what those were we talked about? Prophet, priest, and king, right? Prophet, priest, and king. And so prophets are those who were the spokesmen for God. Priests to the people, right? Priests were the ones that spoke to God on behalf of the people, interceding for them. And kings are the ones that rule and protect and uh, represent the Lord and mediate between um, God and the people as well. 
And so today we're going to see something of the nature of the atonement as well as the extent of the atonement. Uh, to put that in other words, we're going to consider what exactly the atonement is and what it accomplishes and who it is effective for. And so let's go ahead and read um, paragraph three, and I'll just uh, read that. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus and his human nature, thus united to the divine and the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy and harmless and undefiled and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Well, as with some of these other um, paragraphs here, it's just absolutely packed full of theology. You can see just even the, the proof text, these are not even exhaustive. Those are just selective. But um, you can see that that's quite a mouth, mouthful. So first of all, uh, his character, he's sanctified in holiness, he's set apart, he's altogether not like us, <laughs> and therefore he qualifies to be the mediator. Psalm 45 says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And it's amazing to consider that, in a sense, what this is saying is that he was, it says specifically, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, more than any other person, more than anything. And, and you look at the role of the Holy Spirit, for example, through the life of our Lord, very, very vital. Think of just even in the wilderness, um, those 40 days of temptation. How does that begin, that, that section? led by the spirit right and so he's led by the spirit the spirit is with him tending unto him in Acts chapter 10 it says how he went out from doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil for God was with him and likewise in Colossians 2 in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge now we've already read in verse 19 for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It's very interesting, and that's used, the idea of it's a fullness to, to absolute complete capacity, and that is what's said of our Lord. It's to that end. And then the means of the appointment of this office, uh, did he appoint himself? It says the what, Father, right? Please the Father. He's the one that, that had appointed him. So Hebrews 5.5 5 says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so it points back really to the first paragraph as it began. Among, within the pleasure of God, it pleased God to do these things so that we could be reconciled to him. It pleased the Lord. Let's turn to John chapter 5. 
last part of um, our paragraph, thereunto called by his father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. John 5 and verse 22 and 27. Um, if somebody wants to read that for us. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. In verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And we can think of, can you think of any other Thanks, Steve. Can you think of any other passages that actually speak to this exact theme? Revelation. Okay, well, certainly Revelation, right? <laughs> uh, for sure. Revelation, that's good. Thinking of Paul when he's preaching in Athens, remember, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent, repent because he's fixed a day which he will judge the world and righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Jesus Christ, I mean, there's so much here. He's anointed by the Spirit. He's filled to the fullness, full of grace and truth, um, and that he's ultimately the judge, the one that will judge. So that's describing, helping us understand his person, but uh, the fourth uh, paragraph here begins to address the work that he took on. And um, somebody, Brian, why don't you go ahead and read uh, paragraph four for us. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which he should have borne and suffered, being made sin in his Enduring the most grievous sorrows in this world and most painful sufferings of his body, was crucified and died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Very good, thank you. So really this is talking about at least five things that Jesus has done. It's talking about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sure return to this earth. All packed into that one statement here. But let's consider what he accomplished in his life and his obedience. And um, Hebrews 10, Masi, 5 to 10. You can get that. Jamil, John 10, 18. <clears throat> and then I'll read Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, in verse 2, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read that, verses 5 to 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to you to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So let's flesh this out a little bit. Um, Remember, we're thinking about, we're at the beginning of paragraph 4 of chapter 8 in the Confession. Christ the Mediator, guys. Uh, And we're talking about his life. And so... What is characteristic? What, what what is being said about his life? It's a quote from Psalm forty here in those first few verses. Looking at verse seven. <laughs> yeah, it said that he was prepared beforehand to take the the place of the sacrifice of the offerings that God never required. Okay, and then at the end of verse seven. I've come to do your will, O God. And so we see something of the obedience of Christ. In other words, if Christ did not obey the Father, he's not a suitable substitute for us, right? There's no way that sacrifice could be looked on and that that we could be saved. And so he had to perfectly obey. Just flipping back to Hebrews 5, actually. In verse... 7 and 8, actually 7 to 9. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him a source of eternal salvation. So we have here the idea of the obedience of the son. And when it says learned obedience, that doesn't mean that he never, that, that he didn't used to obey and now he obeys, we know that, right? But it's through his humanity, right? That's just something new that he fulfilled, having been made perfect, um, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who would trust in him. And so it's vitally important that his life be sinless, that his life be perfect if he's going to be a suitable substitute for us. We're talking about the work of Christ here. And so that has to, that has to be in play. But also, he had to really and truly die. If, if, he, was, if he didn't really die, right, then there's the resurrection is flawless, right? The, the conquering of death. And so he had to actually die. And so the confession makes a statement here. How does it say it? 
He was crucified and died, and, and <laughs> it's kind of odd language, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. So in other words, he really did die. It wasn't the, you know, he, his heart stopped beating for three minutes and then, you know, came back. But he, he remained in the state of the dead for a considerable amount of time, yet um, there was no corruption. And so, um, Ezra, if you can get Matthew 3 and verse 15. I like, I like that, um, too, because it, uh, it speaks to the idea that he swooned. You know, so I know Muslims teach that you know, Jesus swooned. He wasn't really dead. He was knocked unconscious for a little while. And then he just came back to life and eventually he died just like the rest of us. But, you know, here we're, we're clearly taught that the scripture teaches us that he actually died and he, he suffered. And so I like the idea that it's, it's written here clearly that um, it was an actual death. It wasn't a uh, state of unconsciousness. Yeah. But it was a state of death. Amen. Yeah, like First Peter three eighteen. For Christ also died for our sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. You have that substitution language, that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, He made alive in the spirit. But made alive in the spirit. And then Matthew three fifteen, Ezra. Matthew three fifteen. Jesus replied, "Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness." Then John consented. Uh, yeah, and that was has to do with right. Um, so his life is death, his resurrection is just as important, and the go-to statement for that at First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Of course, there's many other verses that could be stated, but Paul gives this concise summary of the gospel in verses three and four. I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So you have the, the emphasis put there, 15, 3 and 4. Um, you have the emphasis put there that not only did he die, but he was buried. By the way, the Gospels, if you've ever noticed... We just finished up Mark, but the considerable amount of time that's given to the burial of Jesus is, I think, personally, to um, debunk any who would say, well, you know, the swoon theory or whatever. But, you know, for example, there's several verses at the end of Mark 15 that we spent some time on. And then there's a, there's a lot of scripture that's given to his actual burial. If this doesn't say he was on the cross, he died, and then all of a sudden he came out of the grave. There's a lot of um, information given to us concerning um, the nature of his burial and, and how he was anointed and the spices and so forth. But just as important as the resurrection, of course, is the ascension. And if somebody can go to Acts chapter 1, Verses 9 to 11, and, and read that for us. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while 
they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So, <clears throat> interesting text, and just recently, you know, sometimes verse 11 will be used as a proof text for a, a secret rapture, but <laughs> how, how can that text be used? as a proof text for a secret rapture. Just as he was taken up with many witnesses and many eyes seeing him in like manner, he will come again. It's not that he's coming to you know, do a secret rapture, but anyway, this is very, very important. So he's ascended to heaven, and where does he, where's, what's his place in heaven? Over and over it says in the scriptures. Right hand of the Father, right? And... Um, the place of favor, the place where he intercedes on our behalf. Uh, Romans 8 and verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. And so that place of at the right hand and he's interceding for us as our great high priest. And then as we just saw in the previous paragraph, that God had appointed him, given him all power and judgment had been given to him, so too this paragraph says that he shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. And um, we've actually, Acts one eleven is one of the proof texts there. He will come again in like manner, right? Revelation was mentioned earlier, you know, the book of Revelation where we see him coming with the sword out of his mouth and the white horse, right? He's coming to judge. He is the one who will return to judge men and angels in the end. Uh, Romans 14, we could look at, if you want to turn there, verses 9 and 10. stand before the judgment seat of God um, the emphasis again every uh, tongue will give praise to God each of us will give an account before the Lord um, other verses could be cited Second uh, Peter 2 4 speaks of this but um, I want to get us into the last uh, paragraph 5 so we can discuss um, the active and passive obedience of Christ, because that's something that's very, very vital for us to understand. But any questions so far on three and four comments that we've looked at? Yeah. 
on these two paragraphs. We've, we've considered more of his person in number four, his work, his life, his death, uh, his um, resurrection ascension, and that he will judge and return as judge. Um, but any other thoughts on those? Um, I, I like um, uh, 17 in paragraph 3 when he says he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediate, mediator and surety. I like the idea that um, this particular office that Christ fills is not an office for anybody. You know, but it's, it's an office that's only fit for him. An uh, office that is only fit for one who is truly righteous. Jesus pointed to this idea when he talked with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I did not come to break the law, but I came to fulfill it. You know, again, pointing to his office as, as mediator. And so I like that idea, and it, it really helps us when we witness to other people because we can show uh, their inability to be able to come to God themselves, and we're able to point to their need for a mediator. And so um, I really like that in paragraph three. Um, yeah. And it points to John 1, 4, when he says, and the word became flesh. You know, it points to dwell among us, and we have seen his glory, the one of the only begotten uh, son from the Father, full of grace and mm -hmm. truth. Yeah. So. yeah, thoroughly furnished. It's something that we could never be furnished <laughs> for. He's, yeah. He alone is thoroughly furnished to mm -hmm. execute this. And that's really based on his perfect life, right? Yeah. And, and his taking the punishment that we deserve. By the way, the, this, um, the Apostles' Creed, let me just read a part of this, and you can see the similarities. And as we've talked about previous uh, confessions and building on the shoulders of, of the thought that has gone before the formulations of confessional faith and from the Apostles' Creed, um, from the fourth century, um, you can see this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Um, he descended into hell. That's, uh, the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We're not going to go down the road of he descended into hell. We know he did not descend into the physical hell. <laughs> so... Uh, I'll just say that, but you can see how all of these th those things that we just considered in paragraph four are really touched on there. And so it's a confessional, orthodox summary of what Christ has done. So let's look at uh, the fifth, and this is a, a shorter paragraph. Can I, can I offer a comment real quick? Sure. Um, I started off as uh, growing up in a big evangelical church. And so um, then I see the difference when I started um, looking into Calvinism and then, then the sequence of the Reformed theology and then systematic theology and so on and so forth. But <clears throat> being as if there's a part of me that's real simple that I have to kind of take a step back, one thing that I appreciated about the way that God reveals himself that I learned a lot, that it made a big impact in my life, and that, that, that apart from me, which I had a habit in, in, in the big evangelical church that I started with me. Whereas I see that the Bible is unfolding who God is like somebody who is watching a movie where God is demonstrating everything through Christ. 
And once I saw that pattern, then I started appreciating, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the imperatives and indicatives, and most of all the New Testament scriptures, they have these doctrinal books, demonstrates who we are, and then he lets us know who we are in God's demonstration uh, of his majesty and his goodness and kindness. Are you guys following me? And so I saw that, that God has been so kind to demonstrate and involve himself through Christ that as it that I understood better that I am an object of grace. Somebody who's receiving God's revelation in terms of him demonstrating, opposed to me being anxious to, oh, what, can, what good can I get out of the Bible? Does that make any sense? I'm not the best communicator. Does yeah. that make any sense? It, it does? Yeah. And so I, I saw the beauty of God that apart from me, God is working. Apart from all of us, God is working. And by the way, that God has a great place for you. Then I saw that wonderful place of humility that I belong, that I'm part of God's demonstration even to the heavenly realms that I'm a person who receives grace. And once I learned that, I saw the beauty of God and I saw the pattern, the, the, the Bible opening up and illuminating. I have a great God. Opposed to me being my first instinct is to, how can I learn good character for myself and how can I behave in such a way? No. I see the Bible clearly saying the bulk of these doctrinal books, and then it says, therefore, in light of God's mercy, offer yourself. Whereas I had it the other way around. Yeah, so you, you were, can yeah. You communicate that yeah, 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 so you were, yeah. so, so basically, there's nothing wrong with going to the Bible to, see, to benefit from that, yes. because it's a means of grace, but I understand what you're, what you're trying to say, is that when we go there just for the me factor and you know to polish up this or that or whatever you know that that's that's the wrong motive and I used to follow my we're, we're going there so we that we can learn what Christ has done for us yeah. and then out of gratitude then it those imperatives are not burdensome they become a delight that's what I meant to say okay? <laughs> but that's it that's exactly it it's something like Romans chapter 3 yeah you know when it says, uh, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over for his sins. In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness mm -hmm. at the present time mm -hmm. so that he might be mm -hmm. the just and the justifier yes. of the one who has faith. And so even in that book of Romans, that you don't even really get commands until Romans chapter 8. Six. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. The bulk of it, yeah. Yeah? Well, I mean, the, and really the application yeah. part really starts in 12. I mean, it's still just really indicative that there is an imperative in 611, uh, which we all know that verse. Uh, therefore, even consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first imperative. Um, so let's read five, and then I want to get into talk about the importance of um, how Christ exactly has fulfilled that perfect obedience and exactly how um, he suffered for us. So um, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God hath fully satisfied the justice of God that's a profound statement okay and then 
procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given him. So there's a couple things, um, that, well, there's several things we're going to consider here. Uh, fully satisfying the justice of God is really the section that Steve just oh, read. So <laughs> I, 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 I almost stopped you when you started. Go, I was like, I know we're going to read that because oh, that's so important. But uh, that's okay, though. So, so you got, so you got that, which is great. Um, but this idea that he's procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance is very, very important. So it's something that he has actually. Um, brought about, the word actually uh, means to bring about by care or by pains. And so, in other words, Christ's death um, is not just some token or a symbolic, something symbolic that happened for us to, to get God's favor, but Christ's death, get this, actually paid the payment that was due, the full debt and in its entirety, satisfying divine justice. In other words, I mean, the whole idea of what redemption is, of buying back, of purchasing back somebody that was enslaved or in the slave market, there, it wasn't just something symbolic that you could do. There was an actual price that had to be paid. There's, it's so symbolic. I mean, the, the, the slave that was formerly enslaved is now completely free, having earned the freedom. And, and so that's what Christ has done for us. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. In other words, we are released from our sins, we're released from the shackles of sin, and God has, there, there's a purchasing, um, a purchased of everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Now let's turn to John 17. This is a very important passage to look at, and, and I, I think we all would agree uh, in here with the doctrine of definite atonement or particular redemption. In other words, when Christ performed this, it was for a particular people. Look, and this is Christ's uh, high priestly prayer. We're going to look at several verses here. Verse 2. Actually, let's just read 1 and 2. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, let's just stop right there. Who is the whom? What does it mean when it says whom? Okay, so whom is a particular group of people, right? It, the GBC men's theology group, you know, referring back to that, whom, right, <laughs> are studying whatever. So this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Verse 6. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me, notice it, to make it even more clear, out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept my word. 
Now, how much clearer does that have to be? This, these men whom you gave me. Now we're talking about the whom. It's a group of men that are selected out of the world whom you have given me, right? Who have kept my word, who are chosen and, and, and performing the will of God. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom, again, you have given me, for they are yours. And then verse 23 and 24, I mean, we, my goal is to preach through John 17 at some future point, which should probably be 15 or 20 sermons, but um, which would actually be rather on the brief side compared to what some Puritans have done. But uh, 23 and 24, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given to me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. John Owen bases his classic work, The Glory of Christ, which I wholeheartedly commend to you on verse 24, <laughs> that purpose clause so that they may see my glory whom you have given me. I wholeheartedly recommend that work. I'm sure it's available free online in a PDF format, um, but just to be enraptured with the absolute glory of the second person of the Trinity and all of its functions and all of its person and all of his work. If, if I may interrupt, if you could entertain me on a, on a very short rabbit trail. How do I might table it if I'm going to be getting to it later, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you want to argue against limited atonement over sacred redemption. Okay. How do they argue against these verses? Well, let's throw that on the table. I've got my answers, but I want to let others uh, jump in. Against limited atonement? So how, how would an Arminian argue that Christ died for everyone? say that, that, that these verses only refer to the 12. I would assume that's what, where they would go. Okay. So let's. Uh, are you saying like how would they refute these verses or the doctrine in general? Um, actually, it, it was. I guess you can now break it into two parts, but particularly these, because obviously they're going to refute the doctrine. But to me, I always thought, you know, when I was learning all this, but when I was going to RBCR at the time, because Robert was going through um, John, just hearing all this, it, it like totally made sense to me immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, coming. I think Ezra's right. The argument would be, well, this refers to the to the twelve in particular, but very specifically, he says, "I do not pray for those. I do not pray for the world. I do not." I mean, it's it's a repeated theme, and you actually have to study. First of all, in the whole context of this upper room discourse, okay. But then, secondly, so you, you kind of look at the context of the chapter, which are not inspired, but but the discourse itself. But then the gospel itself and the nature of John, and I mean, John is one of the most Calvinistic gospels, you know, that, that there, I mean, it just jumps off the pages everywhere uh, for what Christ has done. I mean, you can go to John chapter 10, for example, you know, that the contrast, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life on behalf of the sheep. 
you know, he's talking about goats. These are not mine. These I do not lay down my life for, essentially, again and again. But there's also those vo verses that would kind of lean towards uh, a universalism, you know, where, like, for example, First Timothy uh, chapter 2. And, yeah, we don't, I don't. Just first John 2, 2, it says that he died for our sins and not only ours, but for the whole world. So that would be another one, yeah. But those are just because they misinterpret wording. Right. Mm -hmm. World does not always mean right. every person in the world. Mm -hmm. All yeah, does not always mean Gentiles and stuff like that. all. Mm -hmm. The other argument they have is based off of Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30. It says, those who he foreknew, he also predestined, and those who he predestined, he also justified. So basically, it goes down on the word foreknew that we understand as love before the foundation. They know that he just knew that they would love him, so he made that, they, he predestined them, but he, because he knew that they, on their own mind, didn't choose it. He looked through the corridors of time, yeah. saw that Mosmo would stop being a wicked, wretched sinner like he was, and, and, <laughs> and, and so, so therefore, I'm going to elect you. Yeah. But so basically, it comes down to that misunderstanding of you know, certain words. And, you know, okay, verse, for, is everybody 1 Timothy 2, verse 6? Well, let's look at 5 and 6. Actually, we're talking about mediator, right? For there's one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for? There's the all one again. All the testimony given at the proper time. Now, how, what do we do with this? We look at the broader context. Now look up at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, <laughs> listen, and thanksgivings be made on all men. And then notice, how, now, all men, now you can actually look at verse 2 is parenthetical. I'm not suggesting add parentheses, but Okay, what do you mean, Paul, by all men? Who do you want me to be praying for? For kings, for those in authority, so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable. Who desires, and here's verse 4, all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, he's talking about um, those in authority, for, for actual kings, for the others in authority. The way that I would explain this is it's all sorts of men, all kinds of men. And you look at how, look, just even look at our makeup. You've got some that are very elevated, some that are very high in corporations, others that are more lowly, and, and we're all just from, we're just, we're all different nationalities. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's just, we're, we're just it's, it's like he's really giving an example. Right. And so, um, yeah, and then John 10 would also. Um, be a place for that as well, but anyway, I, I, I don't want to take too much yeah, time on that. But yeah, but you see what I mean uh, by that. And then Mossy, could you close that door over there, please? Just because I think they're going to get out and start making noise. Now I want to read for you. Um, has anybody read uh, John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied? Yeah, very, very excellent paperback, Banner of Truth paperback. Um, should be. Danner reading, yeah, it's not, not real long, but um, listen to Murray. It says, the distinction between the active and a passive obedience of Christ is not a distinction of periods. 
It is our Lord's whole work of obedience in every phase and period that is described as active and passive. And we must avoid the mistake of thinking that the active obedience applies to the obedience of his life and the passive obedience to the final sufferings of his death. Now, can you get that, please? The, the thing that, that I want to point out here, and I think we've all probably been guilty of, if, if you've ever tried to articulate this, is you articulate it that simply. And, and it's, it's an orthodox um, summary, but I would consider this as an oversimplifying of what the active and passive obedience of Christ is. So listen to how he qualifies this. The real use and purpose of the formula is to emphasize the two distinct aspects of our Lord's vicarious obedience. The truth expressed rests upon the recognition that the law of God has both penal sanctions and positive demands. It demands the full discharge of its precepts, but also the infliction of penalty for all infractions and shortcomings. It is this twofold demand of the law of God which is taken into account when we speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Christ is the vicar of the people come under the curse and condemnation due to sin, and he has also fulfilled the law of God in all its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of our sin, passive obedience, and perfectly fulfilled the demand of righteousness the act of obedience. He perfectly met both the penal and perceptive requirements of God's law. I know. I realize that was a long quote. It's easy to lose people. The quote's actually on the sheet. <laughs> you could have followed along. Maybe some of you were following along. But, um, but <clears throat> does that make sense? Like, for example, I mean, he had to fulfill the law of God, right? Steve mentioned that earlier. And the law has penal sanctions and positive demands. In other words, do this and live. If you don't do this, you're going to be punished. And so Christ fulfilled both the active and passive obedience um, to its fullest. And, and that's really part of what's being summed up here. And, and what had to happen for him to procure that old word. And of course, when you come across these words, you look it up in uh, like Oxford English Dictionary or something like that, you can see what its original meaning uh, meant. And I already shared that it's bring about by cares or pains. In other words, not just something symbolic, but something that he actually did. So the last thing I want to cover tonight is um, the necessity of the atonement. We've already kind of been talking about this, but was there could there have been any other way no. to get to achieve salvation of God's elect, if God's God, couldn't he have done something else? Right, and, and, and it's, it's justice that demands that there has to be an atonement, right? I mean, man has fallen in the garden. There was a threat of death. Spiritual death has spread to all men. And so since the covenant of redemption, which we talked about in the decrees of God, God has chosen to save. And if he's going to save, an atonement becomes absolutely necessary. Hebrews 2, it was fitting for him for whom are all things, 
through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Goes on to say that he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest to us. Um, Paul asked the question in Galatians, is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Okay, And so that justice, uh, the justice of God makes the atonement necessary. Steve read it earlier. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he could be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, that's, a, that's an amazing thing, that last phrase. I once had an email address that was um, Romans 3.26, <laughs> but because the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus is a profound thing. He's the one that pardons you, and, and he, but he's the just one, right? He's the, he's the one that justifies you, but he's also just and that he provides the means that he can justify you. That, that's just exciting stuff. <laughs> and and in the, it's only in the complexity of the revealed scriptures that we can even put all these pieces together. And then even that, it's communicated in such baby language, as it were, as Calvin would say, because our minds could not even completely fathom the complexities of what he has done to save us. We know Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did in sending his own son in the what? Likeness of sinful flesh. Um, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so when we think about who put Christ on the cross, so did the Jews kill him? Did, you know, who killed him? Did the Romans kill him? It's ultimately the Lord. It pleased the Lord to crush him because of the incredible plan of God to bring about salvation. And that's how the justice of God can be satisfied, propitiation. And you mentioned it earlier in um, uh, 1 John 2. And what, is that, what does that word mean, propitiation? You mean satisfaction of justice? It's satisfaction of justice. And um, I would just add, was there any other words we would add to that? Okay, fully satisfied. Uh, a pleasing sacrifice. Yeah. Pleasing sacrifice. That God's anger was <clears throat> subsided. Yes, so it's, it's an appeasement of the just wrath of God that the, the sacrifice actually satisfied <sighs> that wrath, that just wrath. You know, it's an amazing word. In fact, Murray, he says this, propitiation places in the focus of attention, the wrath of God and the divine provision for the removal of that wrath. Reconciliation places the focus of attention on our alienation from God and the divine method for restoring us to that favor. And so, uh, again, there's, yeah, it is. A, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I'm, I, I'm seeing more and more why we need to rest in Christ, you know, because what Christ has done for us. And if you look at the law and you look at yourself, you see like, man, I'm so sick, you know. And But when you look to Christ, 
he's able to provide that rest in light of your sinful state or condition, you know. So I'm just thinking about that as you read it, you know, why it's so important for us to just rest in Christ because of his finished work, because he satisfied the Father. And it's just so encouraging. It absolutely is um, that he's accomplished this. First John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us mm-hmm. and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, to satisfy that wrath that is justly there against our sins apart from Christ. We absolutely deserve to spend an eternity in hell in darkness and gnashing of teeth and in a place of absolute, complete loneliness, a place secluded from the presence of God, a, a, a place of, of intense pain like we've never experienced in this life. Christopher Love and his sermons on hell, he's a Puritan who was executed at age 33, gave the illustration of, of how long is eternity? Well, picture a seagull that would pick up one grain of sand and fly to the other side of the world and drop that grain of sand. And each time it did that, that was a million years. And there was all the sand on the seashore to go back and to take back another grain of sand. And that's another million years and another million years. And you just think about, okay, there's 50 billion years and a handful and then you begin to think about if this room was filled with sand and the trillions and quadrillions, you know, it's an amazing, now you flip that around, that's an absolute fearful, horrid thought and one that should alarm the unconverted to flee to Christ. But there's such a beauty in Christ like we've been considering tonight, but also that there is such a terror of hell. But the, the flip side of that is Ionius in the Greek, eternal, that the same word that speaks of eternal death is used for eternal life. And so our time with him, you know, the hymn kind of leaves it. When we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing his praise. You know, that's a, a fraction of a grain of sand. I mean, we've, it's going to go on forever and ever. It's an amazing thing. And then I think I'll save to, for next time since we're going over, but just the idea of substitution, which is at really important for us to understand too, because again, that leads to that peace, that comfort, because he really did stand in my place. He didn't do something that got me there, 99% of it, but the rest depends on me. No, he completely, he did it all, and we can rest in him.